0: Welcome to our latest podcast of the stories from the PA Wilds. This podcast is the third in our special series on pandemics, where today we're going to evaluate the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 in Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania Wilds.
1: Yeah, we're really glad everyone can join us again for our, as Jeffrey said, third episode on pandemics. And if you've noticed, we have a new logo. And that new logo was provided to us by Laughing Owl in Kane, Pennsylvania, just up the road here from Clarion. And we want to thank them and the PA Wilds organization who sponsored us uh, to create that new logo. It's really sharp. I suggest you go check it out and check out Laughing Owl if you need any of your local graphic design.
0: Yes, it's an awesome logo. We also want to thank uh, Matt Albright, who's helping us with communication issues. As we are again online recording this, and we are limited by using the online platform. So please bear with us.
1: Yeah, we're, we're continuing to social distance. Uh, the pandemic has not abated. So we are continuing our Zoom recordings. Exactly. And so, what we're going to cover today, you know, we've covered the sort of biology or, or virology of the disease in our first episode, we talked about historic outbreaks sort of throughout human history with Dr. Robinson in our last one. Today's episode, we want to talk about sort of the linkages with the Spanish flu of 1918, because that's probably the most similar outbreak that we've experienced compared to this coronavirus, right? It's the most uh, contagious and deadly, the combination of those two being really important. So yes, there's other pandemics that have gone around around the world in 1968, 69, not as deadly, but as contagious, or maybe SARS, less contagious, very deadly, right. So Spanish flu of 1918 is where most historians are sort of zoning in on here to try and understand what we're going through today. So, Jeffrey, can you tell everyone what the Spanish flu was and kind of why it was so important?
0: Yes, the Spanish flu is actually quite interesting. And it does make comparisons mostly because of its ability to spread so rapidly and globally and affect such a large population. And in 1918, a new strain of the influenza virus swept the world, killing an estimated 21 million people. Eventually, at least 50 million people died from this influenza outbreak, including 675,000 Americans at least. Our numbers are not very accurate. In terms of it, they tend to undercount, if anything. It was named the Spanish Flu because it spread to Europe, it started to ravage Europe. It actually originated in the United States, most likely. Uh, many argue it originated in Kansas, in Fort Riley, where in March 1918, there was an outbreak that killed 48 soldiers. And this is where uh, we will both talk about this, the connection to World War I is taking place at the time. The soldiers brought this flu which arguably you could call the American or Kansas flu, to Europe. And there it spread. And it spread th- like wildfire through the trenches, through the fronts in World War I in Europe. Um, but it's named the Spanish flu because there was enormous censorship of the press because of World War I. And so one of the only presses in the world that was more open and free to report things about devastating problems, including a virus, was the press in Spain, where they reported the outbreak in May 1918 in Madrid, where King Alfonso uh, came down with the flu. So children were the most vulnerable as well as the elderly in this one. The problem is actually a lot of young adults were too because a lot of it was about immune reaction. And it spread through sneezing, coughing, exhaling, all the same ways that other sorts of major respiratory viruses spread. It had symptoms very similar of cough, fever, body aches, and exhaustion.
1: And so, you know, the other problem with attacking younger folks, too, is who's in the military, largely younger folks, right? Yeah. And so, you know, of course, it's going to spread like wildfire through those groups. Um, And as we're thinking about sort of, how do we get some information to you about the Spanish flu of 1918? Right? How do you digest it? We decided we're going to focus on about three things here about leadership, the response of businesses, and how do you social distance in 1918? Right. And so as we look at that, what we want to try and do is bounce back and forth. What is the national or at least for us statewide picture bringing in Philly and Pittsburgh look like compared to what's happening in the Pennsylvania Wilds? Because after all, this is a podcast about the Pennsylvania Wilds. Exactly. So let's start with leadership. And Jeffrey, what do you think? What's going on leadership-wise, nationally, and across the state?
0: Yes, this comes to the national and local picture, where leadership is key. We've talked about this before when we've talked about uh, virus outbreaks. And what's the most important about it is how humans react to it. That's what we look at as historians. And that's how the viruses, these pandemics, can really affect us. Because it's, we have ability to control it. And that's the most important thing we've learned throughout history. Now, we have not always been successful because of a variety of factors, but we can influence the outcome. And this comes to leadership. And leadership and government matter. Government can and does work if we have leadership that plans, is decisive, and takes advice from experts who specialize in disease. It's the main institution that allows us to unite and mobilize together to contain a crisis. And to understand leadership, I want to talk about Pennsylvania, which has. One of the most famous cases is Philadelphia that people, you might even heard Philly, so I'm going to bring in Pittsburgh as well, too, as a way to understand uh, the state picture and also how that relates to the national picture and our local picture. Now, in American cities, the mortality rate varied depending on how individuals and leaders responded to the pandemic. Two of the worst-hit cities in the United States were in our state, Pennsylvania, both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, populous cities, and important cities at the time. Although New York City had three times the population of Philadelphia, for instance, the city spent two decades from the turn of the 20th century improving its public health infrastructure, something Philadelphia did not do. As a result, New York City's mortality rate from the Spanish flu was far lower. But when we look at Philadelphia, it's important to look at Pittsburgh because there's actually in this mix, there's a lot of comparisons between the two. And the PA Wilds connects both to Philly and Pittsburgh, and we ourselves are closer to Pittsburgh. Now, this comes to leadership, as Mark pointed out, and I think leadership is key to understanding this. In both Philly and Pittsburgh, local authorities were really hesitant to take effective action. For example, in Philadelphia, there was pressure to hold what was called the Liberty Loan Parade on September 28, 1918. This was to raise money for the effort of World War I. World War I was coming to an end, but they weren't necessarily sure of that, and that war effort is extremely costly. It's also to raise public morale. Now, all major public health officials warned against having this parade in late September, and they pleaded for them to stop. There were outbreaks in army bases in nearby in New Jersey and Maryland, and they were worried the virus was already spreading and that a massive con- group of people coming together, 200,000, would just be a catalyst for an explosion of the virus. But the health commissioner of Philly, Wilmer Crusin, who was a political appointee who lacked all health expertise as far as we can tell, um, in a position that clearly requires it and had a very laissez-faire approach to governments basically as part of a local problematic local government in Philadelphia that didn't really concern itself much with the local population as much with its own survival and with money. Um, and so they basically, Khrusen and the leadership in Philadelphia ignored and overruled health officials about the parade. He even compared the Spanish blue to the so-called the regular so-called, quote, old-fashioned flu. At this time, even some newspapers were talking about this, too. They didn't want to focus on negatives. So we know the Spanish flu was not the regular old-fashioned flu, and it spread like wildfire through the crowd. Within three days, which was the basic incubation period, the disease broke out all over the city. Um, And for more than three weeks, Philadelphia suffered suffered hundreds of deaths daily. Um, It was a scene reminiscent of the Black Death in medieval Europe, especially in an immigrant district in South Philadelphia, which had large Italian and Eastern European populations, a parish priest would ride through the streets with a wagon calling for people to bring out the dead to have their bodies burned or buried in mass graves. So we had 14,000 people die just from that one outbreak. And turning to Pittsburgh, they faced a similar crisis. They suffered the highest death rate, Pittsburgh, of any American city. And there were hundreds of orphan children because of this. Yet the mayor, Mayor Babcock, who was a business owner, and his health department did not cooperate with both state and federal authorities, including the state health commissioner, who comes up a lot of newspapers we'll talk about. His name is Dr. Uh, Benjamin Royer, who was appointed by the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, Brombaugh, who was a Republican at the time. And both directly ordered the mayor to close certain public places and enact quarantine measures, measures that were needed. Yet especially because it was happening in Philadelphia. Yet the, lo- the virus combined with inactive local government resulted in thousands of deaths. And the Pittsburgh mayor and officials did not cooperate very much with the health commissioner. And this eventually led to this large death rate, not just the spread of the flu, but the large death rate that Pittsburgh is famous for. When the city did cooperate and close schools, bars, other meeting places, including churches and other religious establishments, Sporting events to bring the situation under control. It was only temporary, and they only were responding to orders from the state, who sent around uh, inspectors to actually enforce the closing of these public places. Um, and this is the issue that comes up with the cooperation. And because this, they did not cooperate, the mayor actually tried to lift those uh, regulations quickly, in fact, too quickly. And because of that, Pittsburgh continued to have high infection rates throughout the winter, while other cities vary and often decline if you look at curves. And because of these kind of attitudes, particularly in Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia, but other places, Pennsylvania was one of the hardest hit states with at least 60,000 people dying in the United States were from Pennsylvania. And we see that throughout Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and throughout the Pennsylvania Wilds. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Mark, what do you see going on in terms of this idea of leadership and how it plays out?
1: Yeah, so obviously leadership in rural places is much different, right? In major cities, you're talking about local county health departments or city health departments. You know, rural places don't have that. So, and we even see that today, right? Rural yeah. places basically have very minimal government structure, so when we're reading newspapers from let's just say Kane or Clarion or Brookville, their anger is really only de- directed at one or two people, and it's the two people you mentioned, the governor and the uh, uh, state health official, right? Yes. And so uh, in on October 4th, you know, the Kane Republican writes that these sort of orders by the Public Health Office in Pennsylvania to close What is what? All places of amusement and saloons was the, quote, most drastic use of power in state's history. Wow. And, yeah, that's that's a big statement. Um, But, you know, what you do see is a lot of advertisements in these local papers complying with that, right? This local movie theater in downtown Clarion is closed for the month of October by, you know, state health official, you know, purposes. Um, The saloons are closing. And so there, there's anger and there's angst with with statewide leadership. But it does appear at least on the surface, at least what's being reported in newspapers, that these rural places complied, there wasn't a powerful mayor tied to business interests that had, you know, a reason to maybe go against that. They weren't happy about it much like their counterparts in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Uh, but I do think there's, there's just less layers of leadership to get in the way of thwarting these statewide um, health measures. Now, what we also see, too, is that the Public Health Office in Pennsylvania did a county-by-county county sort of assessment of how the virus was spreading. And we kind of see that today with Governor Wolf's sort of county-by-county Um, stoplight approach green yellow red for whatever it is now they weren't using the same green yellow red but they were taking sort of county by county um advice into into sort of understanding as they went and asked places to close down so a little bit different than what's happening in the cities for sure but certainly the businesses even in in these rural areas are asking for at least give us an end date right the liquor and theater commissions in came in october are begging they're they're on you know constantly writing the uh, public health office at the state level to tell them when is this going to you know expire when can we reopen and from a business point of view i mean if you're let's say a liquor establishment or you're a restaurant, you have food that's expiring. You wanna know if you need to make orders for more food, right? You have rent uh, to pay. Yeah, bills to pay, absolutely. So we see that businesses are pushing for the end of these quarantines, the end of these closures. Um, and, and this really is important in small areas, but at the same time, we don't get the breadth of businesses that you see in the major cities that can have more power when it comes to petitioning the state, right? And that's really interesting because
0: we actually see that actually going on in the Pittsburgh papers, actually, since I'm gonna focus on Pittsburgh. What was then known as the Gazette Times, now known as the Post-Gazette, as we know as the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the coverage of flu is actually pretty limited. It often describes the flu as places taking place elsewhere. Talked about places as far away as Washington State, which is fine, but it doesn't actually refer to local things very much. When it does discuss local, it discusses business interests. Um, For example, when the flu is breaking out, it was really the second wave in in the fall that really had the major impact. And so what we're looking at a lot of fall papers in October, November, when the flu hit its peak in the United States as the second wave, which killed so many people. Um, We look at, for example, October 11th, 1918 in the Gazette Times at the time, as it's known as. The, they basically uh, talk about several things. One is, yeah, there's, the flu is hitting cities in the nation, but the articles about Pittsburgh itself are about businesses. In fact, one article is called Liquor Men to Urge Saloons Opening. This is October 25th to 28th. We haven't even hit the peak yet. And they're already fighting the ban, as they call it, imposed by the health commissioner. And this is where it comes to leadership again, fighting the leadership of the state, trying to control the spread of disease. And one of the reasons they're targeting saloons, what we call bars, is these are public meeting places, just like today. People are in close quarters. They're breathing on each other. And unfortunately, it's a very, one of the top ways to spread disease. Um, and even the newspaper article is interesting that you were bringing out some stuff about uh, these local businesses. What the article uh, basically says, health commissioner gives Pittsburghers no hope that the measures he imposed on bars would be lifted. It's not hope that they'll save lives. Their hope is about trying to continue the business. And while that's understandable, if there's nobody to go to the business, it wouldn't matter anyway. Um, And the the article added, complaints that businesses being affected in mercantile establishments are beginning to come in. In other words, clothing and other sorts of realtors. Although there was no source cited, we don't have much information about this at the time, but certainly businesses are concerned about it. There was no orders necessarily that may have affected or some orders but it really what's happening is the population is being concerned about the spread. Um, and so what this fight is, is it comes back to leadership and business. The mayor of Pittsburgh was closely associated with business interests. He is pushing for those concerns. And what we see these dual concerns um, peak uh, in October, when we basically see, um, and this comes back to leadership, the mayor, Mayor Babcock, basically urging for the state to lift the influence of ban on saloons. He wrote in a telegram, and this is how the, the paper is literally just reporting Babcock's views and what he's trying to do. It is, and he's, Bob, he quotes him mostly. Um, basically, he said, it's my opinion that 80% of the residents, meaning residents of Pittsburgh, now desire the health ban lifted that we may return to normal activities. This is why thousands of people are dying in Pittsburgh because of the lack of cooperation of local officials with kind of ordinances and problems dealing with controlling of the plague. And the That's health commissioner great. is actually very concerned because there's not even enough caskets for the dead bodies. Meanwhile, um, we see the mayor and business interests pushing for other businesses to reopen, um, and it's actually kind of ominous because in the same part where, in the same newspaper on a, on the cover where the cover page is talking about Bob Cup asking for a business to open, what we see is there's actually a blurb about how a steam shovel is used to dig mass graves for victims of the influenza. And so you kind of have this competing interest going on between health and business, even being displayed, even if the paper's not fully covering it, the fact they do show that shows us the problem of what's going on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think there's a really big difference between the local newspapers in the Pennsylvania wilds and those in the major cities. Oh yes. You just mentioned, right? I mean, the major city newspapers are seemingly <laughs> beholden to, these, uh, to the politicians of those cities. Whereas in the rural areas, you know, you set October 28th, 1918, Mayor Babcock's asking everything to open up. Same date in Kane, uh, October 28th, 1918, splashed across the front page, big headlines, quarantine absolute for families infected with Spanish flu. So, you know, it's a very different approach and it's a different view of what's happening. Um, you know, that is dominating rural newspapers at the time is that, you know, look, the virus is here and, and the quarantine must be followed. There are blurbs about businesses that want to reopen, but that's not the dominant conversation in these newspapers at the time. Right. So yeah, October 28th, the game is talking about how, Only breadwinners are allowed out of the house for work. They must be masked. Uh, Groceries and other supplies can be bought by family or friends and left on porches. Funerals are limited to pallbearers and undertakers only. Uh, You know, a desperate call for nurses, uh, you know, paying $20 a week, which is pretty decent pay in 1918. That is you know very different view from the pennsylvania wilds compared to what's going on in the urban places as well
0: it's interesting it's this this comes these leadership and business are kind of linked in a way i mean it comes and you bring it out how maybe leadership and business are closer linked at that time in cities but we see this kind of merging of their issues and concerns and they are legitimate businesses want to survive Um, This will come to another issue we're going to come about workers, because there's the majority of population. But we have these health concerns. And it's amazing how either they're not being covered very much besides the blurb about the steam shovel was really short. It was just a little blurb. There was a far more about the urging of, of the liquor saloons and other things to open. We do see actually in the same paper actually talking about places in the PA wilds. And I think you may have some stuff. For example, they're talking about outbreaks in St. Mary's, which is uh, to the east and north, a little bit of us in Clarion at least. And there was an outbreak of, of cases in St. Mary's and that comes up a little bit in page 14, <laughs> news from okay. Pennsylvania. I don't know what you see in the local papers. It's interesting, they're reporting more about that than actually deaths in Pittsburgh. But what do you see in the local papers?
1: Yeah, the local papers, I mean, that's again, front page news, St. Mary's on October 31st institutes a full lockdown of the town, no one in or out. Um, the Brookville Jefferson Democrat on November 7th suggests that maybe it's not Spanish flu, maybe it's the Black Death, bubonic plague, because, wow. yeah, I mean, it's pretty serious. St. Mary's is going through massive amounts of death. I mean, you mentioned Philadelphia where uh, they're they're bringing around the death cart, basically. Yes. Right. I, I, I imagine the scene, they didn't mention it, but I imagine the scene has to be pretty close to that in St. Mary's if they're calling it the Black Death, right? And so yeah, there's certainly spaces in the PA Wilds where this ravages towns. And part of that is that men especially in the PA Wilds had to continue to go to work. Exactly. These are workers being affected. Absolutely. Yes. We have huge amounts of railroads that cross the PA Wild moving goods and during World War One, those goods couldn't be stopped right ammunition had to get to the front food products had to get to the front to supply soldiers in europe
0: steel and coal all yeah, the, the raw resources. materials yes. to
1: run the war war effort and that's basically what's being produced in this area yes and so we see a couple really interesting things that come out of these these local areas first central pa miners are being asked to work Sundays now because coal miners in Clarion and Jefferson County are so sick that that they can't actually work the coal mines. And so other parts of the state are having to work harder to make up for the coal mines that are out of business because of, or not out of business, out of operation because of the epidemic. And so, you know, the influenza is impacting people so much that they can't go to work. And that's freaking out railroad owners so much. But they begin to try and inoculate railroaders, which, as you know, Jeffrey, and and maybe listeners know, inoculation is not a vaccine. It is giving you a live virus, hoping that your body trains itself to fight the virus in the future.
0: There was no vaccine at this time. They were trying to, like, now develop one. And so basically what happened is, in a sense, these workers are guinea pigs. Yeah. I mean, they're guinea pigs in many ways. They're... They're being forced to go to work. They have to for the effort for the nation, for other, for the companies, for themselves, because, and you can talk more about this, because of the lack of things that we, we take for granted today, unemployment benefits. They need to feed themselves. What are they going to do if they don't work? Um, it seems so basic, but it's obvious. But these people on the front line, a lot of these are actually working class and immigrants. Which is why these mass graves, there's a mass graves both outside of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. One outside is actually in Butler County, not too far from here. There's actually a little sign. And they're mostly immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. A lot of them may even be relatives of people for your own families, if you're listening from the area. If you have some of uh, those sort of backgrounds that date from those times. If you have people who were working at the time, you probably have some relative who possibly died and possibly likely was buried in a mass grave. Yeah. And so this work is a really big issue. By the way, Pittsburgh papers, we don't see it covers as much, but what do you see going on locally in terms of this? Because you were bringing that up, this worker issue is really important.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I sort of hit on it with the railroads. Yeah. Uh, you know, we also have to keep in mind, too, that there is a shortage of workers in general because of the war being exactly. sucked out of the workers' pool into the military. And so, you know, While inoculating railroaders is a really, really extreme step, the the other alternative was to basically do what the coal mines had to do, which is shut down because there were so many workers sick, right? So they had to sort of take a gamble. And of course, like you said, you're gambling on humans. You're using human guinea pigs, essentially, to see if maybe this will keep people... Healthy in the long run. Exactly.
0: It would be interesting to know: Did the leaders, who the people who own the railroads, for instance, did they get themselves inoculated to try it? Yeah, like, I would. They close would would themselves. That. <laughs> I mean, as opposed to, I understand the concerns. I would be interesting for someone to do further research. How did the workers understand this? Did they even know what's going on? They right. may have not understood the full risks because vaccines and inoculations can be as or more dangerous than the disease you're trying to fight. Right. So it's really fascinating how they're being treated. And actually, it's interesting the papers don't cover it as much, but really the day-to-day life of people is really important about their survival.
1: Absolutely. This is a really great opportunity to bring in our guest. And so our guest today is Lou Bernard. He is a librarian at the Ross Library in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. Again, a little further east, sort of central east of the PA Wilds. And Lou has written about and researched about the Spanish flu of 1918 in Lock Haven. And so he's going to tell us a little bit more about what happens there in the Central PA Wilds in 1918. And so we have on the phone with us from his house in Lock Haven, Lou Bernard. We're practicing our social distancing again here. Lou is a librarian at the Ross Library in and- downtown Lock Haven and a sort of as he described himself go-to guy for Clinton County history. So, Lou, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So, being a Clinton County historian, what <laughs> and we've we've made all these connections between the 1918 Spanish flu and and the present coronavirus pandemic.
2: But can yes, you there are definite me- similarities.
1: Yeah, can you give us sort of a rundown of sort of how the Spanish flu happens in Clinton County? What what happens in Clinton County?
2: Sure. Well, what happened was um, in the spring and early summer of 1918. And um, much like today, it's centered around travel. Now, they weren't entirely aware of that then. But uh, several years ago, when I first started researching for actually a totally different project... I was researching the flu epidemic and I just popped the microfilm in and let fly. And I started seeing these obits popping up, you know, this person, that person passed away of the flu. And it was all centered around the railroad stations. Oh, makes sense. Um, yeah, we have, yeah, go ahead. Workers in the railroad station. Yes. Actually, initially every single obit originally mentioned one of two things and it was like 60, 40. Um, workers or just recently back from a vacation okay Okay. like every single bit was either this person was a railroad engineer on or you know track walker something like that or this person passed away and had just recently returned from travel to this area
1: yeah you know i think we we mentioned this with uh another guest that in our interview series here is that this was really a big travel time. We don't think necessarily of the 1918s as being as globally connected as we are today. And for sure, we're more globally connected. But uh, this is the sort of wrap up of World War One happening. People are moving around the world. And of course, they're moving across the country as well.
0: There's people returning from the front. There's people, especially to Pennsylvania, of course, as a large state for recruitment. There's there's outbreaks sort of going on in, in, in cities and people are connected by the railroad. The railroad was the interstate railroad of the day.
2: It man. was. And it's funny you should bring up World War I because um, the big place for the soldiers to ship in and out and the epicenter of the Spanish flu epidemic was the same station. It was um, the Castania Railroad Station. Oh. Castanilla is a small community just outside of Lock Haven Uh, Sort of a suburb of Lock Haven, you could say.
0: And you were connected to Philadelphia then? Or were you connected to how, what were the railroads connecting to as part of
2: that? Yes, the Philadelphia and Erie Railroad ran right through here. Yeah, Philadelphia, like I said, Williamsport, you know, we, we had a couple of lines that went straight to New York. How many people
1: are coming up from cities, do you think? I mean, I think one of the things that we talk about in the PA Wilds, and you see this in a lot of other rural areas today with coronavirus, they're asking people who have cottages and whatnot to stay home, right? And don't come up to these isolated
2: Right. Buildings.
1: Did you pick up any of that, looking at the Spanish flu?
2: Well, yeah, actually. Um, we are right, currently, present day, we are right between State College and Williamsport. And the truth is, back then, the railroads leading into Lock Haven were sort of a hub from Williamsport. Usually that was either your next stop or the stop before getting home. You know, you'd travel through Williamsport and then back home to Lock Haven. So, you know, Williamsport around here is the big one. Gotcha.
1: Okay.
0: What about the type of people who were sort of exposed here? We see a lot of frontline workers are the ones at risk and I don't just mean medical workers, people who are delivery people, people who provide transportation, and that actually a lot of the casualties right now. How does that relate to what's happening in 1918?
2: Well, back then, yeah. Um, And as the time went on, I don't think they kept quite the same track of it that we did back then. However, yeah, I mean, a lot of the fatalities in the first wave uh, were men. The men out there, they were delivery men. Back then we still had milkmen, you know, coming around every day. Um, you know, so the first wave was a male dominated wave really.
0: But even though it did spread originally amongst men, they would bring it home to their families.
2: Yes, yeah, so when the second wave was women, yeah. children. A lot of this I got out of the Clinton County Times. It's a newspaper that was about 15 years old at the time. And I love the Clinton County Times. They ran lists of the dead, and a lot of them were children, you know, at the get-go there. You know, they they would run lists of, uh, like, the children's names and then who their parents were who died, and conclude with, space will not permit a more detailed account. You know, mm-hmm. and this was as the death toll was growing, you know, they would run these things. And again, they didn't understand, you know, back then, they didn't quite get it about the social distancing. Everybody stayed home because they were getting sick and they had to stay home. To some extent, they tried to make it business as usual as much as they could.
0: And that probably spread it further.
2: And that definitely did spread it, yeah. It seems to have come to a peak, from what I can see from the newspapers here in Clinton County, it pretty much peaked in the autumn of 1918, October, November, and then started to trickle off a little.
0: That's generally what happened throughout Pennsylvania.
1: Especially, especially rural Pennsylvania. I know the cities, of course, were hit earlier, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Yep. But, you know, the same today, really. Well, exactly. And I think that makes a really good comparison. I was, I was pulling up uh, one of our previous episode guests, Jess Hilburn, wrote, oddly enough, last year about Titusville being hit by the Spanish flu. And um, these are, you know, late October timelines here.
0: Well, what happened well, in the know, Spanish flu, though, is that there was, a, there was a second wave that happened in the fall. And I think. Yes, you, there was. Is what you're talking about is that second wave, because of the change, I think the virus actually altered a little bit genet- genetically, and there was a new virulent strain.
2: Well, at least here in Lock Haven, um, people would start to feel a little better and then get out and go right back to work. The state of Pennsylvania had to actually issue a statement saying, don't do that you stay in bed for a while after you feel better because they would get it and they continue to spread it to other people. So you'd get kind of a fresh outbreak, you know, people trying to keep it business as usual.
0: Did you find people were listening to the state directives to not to do things, what we call now social distancing, or was there a lot of resistance because people felt like they had to work because they needed to be able to pay for food and shelter?
2: yeah. Um, yeah, it took I mean, them
0: a while. It took a while? Okay, how long did it yeah, take? Yeah,
2: it did. It did. I mean, yeah. people, um, not that they didn't take it seriously, but, you know, we were also in an era of, you know, well, I got to do a job. So it did. It, it took a while for people to start following all those directives.
1: I, I'm probably going to say this till I'm tired of saying it, but, you know, these are small counties with small, you know, uh, nurses and doctor staffs.
0: It seems like a lot of newspapers were not reporting the flu as much as they should have. And there's a lot of reasons why. But you're looking at a local newspaper. So I'm wondering, did it change at all? Was there a local, you know... It
1: started
2: off with an obituary here and there that quite honestly, you'd miss unless you were like me going and looking for the pattern. And then it started to spread once like entire neighborhoods began to get the flu. Then it hit, you know, oh well, I'd say a few weeks in. Then they started to really pick up the reporting and talk about it.
0: And what was the impact on the communities for this flu in terms of there was a lot of deaths? Were there more young people dying, if you could tell, or more older people? What was their status in the community and how did that influence the community after 1918, 1919?
2: From what I've seen, yeah, children were the biggest I've been to smaller cemeteries, and you, you, you walk around and boy, you can tell when there was an epidemic because you will see the same year on a lot of kids' graves. Seems to have had the, um, the effect of making people really wanna get out there and rebuild, you know, really wanna continue on.
0: Well, that was a helpful interview to highlight some of the major issues we already discussed on the national, state, and local level in the eastern part of the Pennsylvania Wilds.
1: Yeah, and Lou's interview really, again, drives home some of the points we've been talking about. And one of those major points is the, the ability to go to work or the need to go to work. And, and you know, we've been talking about this between Jeffrey and I and now with Lou. This is World War One happening at the same time. And so there really isn't the ability to stay home, right? Materials have to get made. They have to get sent to Europe. Food has to be processed and canned and sent to Europe. And so, you know, we, we talked earlier about the Erie National Railroad or the Erie Railroad that runs through this area at the time and those workers being inoculated against the virus to, in hopes to keep them working. And, you know, you know, some of these dubious sort of efforts to keep people working is in part because a lot of doctors and nurses are also overseas. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with not only a virus that's very deadly in 1918, and the fact that people have to go out to work, but that the medical apparatus around them isn't really able to stand up to that. There's not the doctors, there's not the nurses to take care of these sick individuals. And so, you know, we're again, we're very lucky that we don't have a world war going on right now, that yeah. our medical facilities are staffed. Uh, that that we don't need to go to work for, for anything other than just a paycheck, which is of course very necessary. But uh, there, there's not a pressing national war happening, right?
0: And historically, Pennsylvania was slow to enact measures to address the Spanish flu in 1918. And this is why leadership is therefore essential to take action. Even if it's unpopular, it's important that Our leaders are honest, open, and transparent about the seriousness of the situation and how they're going to address it to help save lives, help save the economy at the same time. Now, the dangers of political leaders in 1918, for example, in Philadelphia, calling the Spanish flu the old-fashioned flu, were really obvious after the large outbreak resulted in tens of thousands of deaths, and basically leading to people to not taking precautions. And we see this actually play out in the national level. In St. Louis, Missouri, one of the famous cases also of 1918, the health commissioner of St. Louis was a doctor who sought to, in his words, quote, use every means to keep it, the Spanish flu, down to the lowest possible number of cases. He used the same principles we see today in other nations, which led to a significantly lower mortality rate in St. Louis than Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. So this is why as part of being transparent and honest, it is important for political leaders to listen to expert advice about a public health emergency and to provide this information to the public. The inability of some leaders to provide the public with honest information led to outbreaks and bred distrust and fear. So when the state asked Pittsburgh to close bars while the local leadership openly challenged this request, the public became confused. And as the city was slow to close schools, the disease spread through the city. Whereas leadership that listened to expert advice and warned the public was better able to implement policies that can save lives, even if the policies were not very popular. In cities across the nation, for example, this eventually included a requirement to wear masks to slow the spread of the disease, to slow the overloading of medical facilities
1: by sick patients and to save lives. Yeah, absolutely. And so we can take a lot of lessons from 1918, for sure. Uh, And and heck, that's the point of history, right? And and we can see them replaying today in 2020. um, The differences between the very rural Pennsylvania wilds and the very urban centers of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and the ways that we respond to it and the ways that we work. Um, You know, I hadn't mentioned this, but a lot of the work, if it's not industrial in this area, is agricultural. And especially at that time, it's small family farms, and and the ability to social distance is sort of inherent in that work. So the different types of work are are different in these places. Um, And it's just important to keep all of this in mind as we deal with the pandemic today. So for that, I think uh, we're gonna wrap up this episode here. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, We're looking forward to coming up with some new and refreshing takes this fall on different sorts of PA wilds history. So hopefully you can join us for season two of Pennsylvania wilds uh, stories from the Pennsylvania wilds. And, um, and we hope you all are staying safe and healthy. Thank you for listening. And we look
0: forward to you listening to us in the fall.